So we're in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we're in chapter 10. We're continuing our, working our way through the, through the stories. Um, maybe you can remember the, a couple of weeks back, maybe a month back, time flies when you're having fun, the, we talked about the journey of the Old Testament. Do you remember this? The journey of the Old Testament. Our God's people were being directed to a place. Maybe you can remember that. And think back to the stories that you know about the Old Testament, all the, the stories about Abraham and Isaac and Moses in particular. The direction of traffic was that God's people, it might be a bit of a simplistic way to approach the Old Testament, and it's not all that's going on, but there's a general journey of traffic towards a place. These people, God's people, are on a journey there. They get to the promised land in Cana. They find themselves in this place, and they fight for it. They protect it. They separate themselves. They try and purify themselves. It's a journey to a particular place. And that's where we find the start of the New Testament. There's been this journey to a place. What happens in the New Testament story? What happens in the Gospel of Luke? What's happening from now on? We've talked, haven't we, about how this message, this message that Jesus came to give, is to go out into the world. Remember, we read stories about Jesus getting 12 disciples together, and the stories about him training them up and sending them out. Jesus gets the 70 together. It's a part of chapter 10 that we've not read. He trains them up, and he sends them out. This message is going out. And if you take the two bookends of Luke, if you cheat, Luke wrote Luke, and then he had another book he called Acts. He didn't call it Luke 2, but it probably is. He called it Acts. And at the start of Luke 1, at the start of Luke, you'll remember these stories about genealogies, this temple stories, that was one of the titles that Paul gave us. It's, it's got its toe very much in Judaism, hasn't it? And we break to the end of the book of Luke, and we find that Paul is in Rome, the New York of his day, and the message is going out to the world, and the message keeps on going out to the world. And if we look back through our church history, if you've got enough time on your hands, you'll look back and you'll see this church here actually can trace itself back and back and back via, I don't know, St. Patrick, some Ionian monks, some well-meaning open-toe sandal-wearing missionaries. I don't know how it got here, but there was a point in history where it came, and I've heard 20 or so people started meeting together here in Castleford. We're part of that same journey out, the journey in, and the journey out. But in chapter 10, it's still in Jerusalem. It's still in Judea. And it's still got its toe firmly in the Jewish culture. And you'll, you'll see story after story after story after story as Jesus runs into these Jewish leaders and Jewish teachers. And he's preaching this message that is going out and it keeps hitting a brick wall. And Luke's going to hit us with a story the story of the Good Samaritan that I think Jesus uses to pierce through these levels of traditional Jewish thinking. And you can understand, as I've read it through this week, I've got more and more sympathy with these Jewish people, with this culture. They've, they've, their whole life journey is about being about getting to this place, getting, getting this land and fighting for this land and fighting to purify themselves. And now Jesus comes along and says, this message has got to go out, and you can see why they're going to have a struggle with that. And then Luke gives us this story. Well, there are two stories, actually. The story of Mary and Martha, but we're going to look primarily at the story of the Good Samaritan. And I think it's a story that would just pierce the hearts of these Jews. And it should shake us up as well. Because in the same way, 
We get insular. We like our traditions. We like to have things as we like things. And I think Jesus, by telling this story, certainly to this crowd, picks them up and gets them to look again at their faith. I've been trying to think about how I could introduce this story. Um, and my imagination doesn't, always, doesn't seem to work the same way as everybody's does. I think you can have a logical train of thought. Mine, I hit upon logic every now and again, but sometimes it feels like I shoot off in that direction. And when I saw that the, on, a, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus, when I tried to imagine what this scene would be like, I imagined it a bit like a playground fight or a wrap-off. Or something like that. Thank you, Catherine. Or, you know, like a wrap-off. I'm from the, from the 90s or 80s, or as my kids call it, from the olden days. And people used to, people used to wrap off in this way. Used to have, this used to happen. And it, it was pretty horrible. Actually, if you watched it, they could say some terrible things. But eventually, you'd have a winner. And in this scenario, you've got the rabbi that stands up. No, you've got Jesus, the rabbi, that stands up. And you've got, you've got this expert in the law. This is a, this is a bit of a thing. This is a bit of a moment. This is a heavyweight match. The expert in the law is in town. Jesus is in town. And the whole crowd are watching round. And the expert stands up. And often, this, this would often happen. The rabbis would debate. It was, it was almost like it's just what you did in these times. It was their, not their entertainment, but it, would, it could be viewed as entertainment. And this happened at this time. And the, the expert of the law stands up. And I don't think he's just after a debate here. I think he's trying to test Jesus. I think he's trying to, in this theological wrap-off, I think he's trying to expose him and knock him out. To expose him as a fraud. And Jesus and this guy have the initial back and forth. If it was a boxing match, it's a bit of, I don't know, what do you call it? The start of a boxing match where you just, just fake punches, you're just, just feeling each other out. The expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All the crowd's watching in trying to soak it up. Who's going to win this battle? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, that's right. Do this, and you will live. My suspicion is that the expert and the crowd are going to be a bit, feel like they've had, you know, They've been, had their time wasted. They've come and expecting this, a bit of a furor. They've expected to see Jesus exposed. And this guy's come and said, what have I got to do to generate eternal life? Jesus has says what's written in the law. And he's just said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus has gone, yeah. Yeah, that's it. You've got it right. And you can imagine the crowd going, well, we, you know, I've finished my work early to come and see this. This is, this is the big fight. This is the debate. This is all I've got to see. And he's got one more trick up his sleeve. He's got one more question to ask this expert. Maybe he takes a second and he says, who is my neighbor? Who then is my neighbor? And for the people watching, the theological wrap-off just got interesting. What he's saying is, in his question, who is my neighbor? Just how far are we going to go with this Jesus? My next door neighbor is a, a Roman and, he, and he, you know, he's, he's beaten me up before now. Do I love him? My other next-door neighbor is a tax collector. Do I love him? Do I have to love everyone? Because it's one of those questions that's not really a question, isn't it? It's like tomorrow morning the newspapers will say, is Raheem Sterling good enough to play for England? They're not really asking the thoughts of the nation on whether Raheem Sterling's good enough to play for England. They're saying, we don't think Raheem Sterling's good enough to play for England. There is, a, there is an opinion that is clear 
behind the question. And in this question, who is my neighbor, there is a very definite opinion laid behind it. And we have to maybe unpack the scriptures just for a little bit because the verse that the guy quotes in his answer is not the full verse. There is a fuller verse with a, with a more particular way of understanding it. And it's in, he's quoting when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. That's Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's Leviticus 9, 19, 18. He's quoting well-known verses of the law, but he's missed a bit off. There's another bit. The start of that second bit says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, among your people, but love the Lord your God, but love your neighbor as yourself, rather. And the way that the experts in the law and Jewish people generally had come to view this commandment about your neighbor was that your neighbor was your own kind, your own people. And the expert in the law says, I am willing to love my neighbor as myself so long as my neighbor looks like me, eats like me, thinks about God likes me, hates everybody else like me, practices his faith like me. I'm willing, Jesus, to love these neighbors. Are you telling me that there's more to it than this? It's got interesting. It's become about. It's become a a wrap-off. And everybody's listening to see what Jesus is going to say next. And having your minds, because I've heard this text preached all kinds of ways in my life. Jesus is answering a specific question. You can take this text lots of different ways. The question Jesus is dealing with is, who do I need to love? Who is my neighbor? That is the question that Jesus is answering. And he says, a man makes his way down from Jerusalem to Jericho, runs into bandits, is beaten up and left for dead. And everybody watching says, yeah, I can imagine that. That's what happens on the road down to Jericho. Bandits would come along, beat you up, leave you for dead. And along comes a priest. And everybody listening is thinking, and you know this story in your head. Everybody is thinking, here comes rescue. Here comes salvation. The priest, these are the good guys, right? This guy is going to come and save him. But yet, this priest has got a bit of a problem. Maybe a technical issue. You see, priests can't touch dead bodies. It's in the ceremonial law. So this priest is wandering along, and at least this, Jesus doesn't say any of this. Jesus just says a priest walks by and veers off around the other side. But Jesus puts these two characters firmly in the audience's mind, and they've got to wrestle with this now. This priest, is he, is he going to let the law mean that he doesn't touch this guy who might be dead or might not be dead? Either way you dress this up, the people listening are going to come out thinking, this priest's not a great guy. Jesus has cleverly left some gaps in the story so that the people listening are working out the relationship between the law and what you do in desperate times of need. That's what they're mulling over. They're mulling over the role of this priest and what you do at desperate times of need. And this priest walks by on the other side. Next in line is the Levite. And you know what the Levite does? He does the same thing as the priest. He walks by on the other side. And this story begins to generate a bit of a rhythm, a bit like an Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman joke, or a bit like an anecdote that you're going to say. There's a priest, there's a Levite, and if you're anything like me, you're thinking, right, who's next? And you're trying to jump ahead and say, right, where's the story going? And if you're in that audience, you're thinking, right, what's Jesus trying to say here? Who's going to be the guy who's a good neighbor to this guy? Will it be, will it be a king from afar? Maybe a great noble king will come and save him. Or maybe it'll just be an ordinary shepherd 
Jewish person. Maybe that's the story. That's where Jesus is headed. And that's the, you know, we, we would like that story. Nobody, nobody is expecting what's coming next. Nobody wants to hear the next words that are going to come out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus says, and along came a Samaritan. Now we hear that and we go, oh, they're the good guys, right? 2,000 years of, of, this, of the legacy, actually, of this story has meant that when we think about Samaritans, we think, oh, that's where you go when you're in desperate times. I'll ring the Samaritans up. They will help. That's the legacy of this story, but that is not Jesus' intention. Jesus says the word Samaritan because the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritan is supposed to be an example of somebody who's definitely not going to help, who's definitely not going to be a good neighbor to this person in times of need. Jewish history, in a minute, just so, you, just so you've got some idea of where this is coming from. The Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. The Samaritans are in the northern part of the kingdom. Jews around Judea are in the southern part of the kingdom. The Persian Empire comes in, and you know, imagine it however, however you will, and destroys the northern part of the kingdom. The Samaritans get destroyed. They don't get as far as the Jews in Judea. And I, whenever I think of it in my head, I imagine them at the walls of Jerusalem. I don't know if that's true or not, but they destroy all of Samaria. They have that. And they use a tactic, I think it's called divide and conquer. That's their, that's their, that's their way of, of winning this battle. But I think what it actually means is they say, we're just going to stay. Sounds grand, divide and conquer. But in reality, they just stay there. And over a few hundred years of them staying there, the Jews in Samaria gradually dilute their faith. More and more, they absorb the culture of the Persians. So that the Jews in Jerusalem grow to hate the Jewish people that live in Samaria and they think these people have sold out and they make us look bad because they've sold out. You know, what they're doing to our faith is disgraceful and this animosity builds up more and more and more and more and, and we can see it today in those, part, in those regions of the world today. This is still raging on. This still matters. The animosity gets worse and worse. It's institutionalized racism, really. You're a Jew you're allowed to hate indiscriminately a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan, you're allowed to hate indiscriminately a Jew. And Jesus says, here's the good neighbor. And everybody in the crowd looking for a good debate, their mouths drop. And actually, they're angry. Nobody wants to hear this news. Nobody wants to hear that this guy, this guy is the good guy. And they're just angry inside and they're pausing over it, and they're wondering what Jesus is going to say next. I hope the text is up there. And Jesus does something brilliant. And I've only really, and I'm exaggerating this a little bit, because as I've read it, it just, it just seems so great to me. Jesus lays it on thick. He wants these people, as he sees their, the anger and the disdain in their face, he says, you need to get this, because this message is breaking out of fear. This message is available to everyone. I'm going to lay this on thick so you see the grace in this Samaritan's life. Do you ever lay it on thick? Do you ever do that? There's been times when, when you're making tea, perhaps you're, this is something that I do. I lay it on thick. If Jude's away for the day and she comes back and I've done a few good things, I've made tea for the first time in, in a, I don't know, a month or something like that, and I think I'm going to lay this on thick. I, it's almost a disease. I can't help myself. And, and I, Jude makes tea Week after week after week, and I do it once, and I get back and I'll say, yeah, sea bass in the oven, I've stepped up, look at me here. And then, you, what is this disease that men have where you just have to 
describe every single detail of the process that you've gone through. You can't just make tea, put the tea down and eat the tea. You've got to say exactly what you've gone through. Yeah, I put the sea bass in the oven, squirted a bit of lemon on there, a bit of salt, banged it in at 220. New potatoes are on the go. Bath the kids, bath the kids as well. Said a little prayer with Ethan, tucked them in. We had a good chat, did the homework, and you go on and on and on, and you slow down and you, and you lay, it, lay it on, don't you? You lay it on thick. And what does Jesus say about this Samaritan? He lays it on thick. These people have just gotten used to the fact that this is the good guy. The Samaritan they hate is the good guy. Listen to what Jesus says. He went to him, not like the priest and the Levites. They went away from him. Jesus says he went to him. You got this? He went to them. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on. Can you see the anger in the, in, in the, in the audience's faces? Pouring on oil and wine. Then he put him on his own donkey, his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him, took out two silver coins, months worth of wages, way more than you would ever think was necessary, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he says, look after him. When I return, I'll reimburse you any expense. He, he couldn't have done. He couldn't have done anymore. And you've got the audience watching, watch, watching on, listening on, thinking about this priest who was supposed to help him, who just walks by, and you've got this guy you hate. Turns out to be the good guy. Couldn't have done any more. Isn't it really hard to listen to somebody you hate who does amazingly well, like, a, like your girlfriend's former boyfriend or something like that, and actually he's a really nice guy? Doesn't that just like, do you go, just somehow stings you a little bit, doesn't it? And these people are watching and listening to Jesus describe this Samaritan as this brilliant guy, but Jesus needs to pierce them with this story because this message is going out into the world. So the Jews are going to struggle to hear this. It's a story with an unpalatable hero and his exaggerated exploits of grace to break through Jewish traditions. And it's a knockout blow. This guy is flawed. Jesus has told one simple story and the experts on his back. It's exposed by his own question in light of the grace of the Samaritan. When he said, who is my neighbor, he was trying to look smart. But actually, it's just exposed the fact that his love only goes as far as his own kind. And the love of this Samaritan went way further than that. And what he's exposed is, is the shallowness of his love. Jesus says to the expert, through this story, you're asking the wrong question. The question a God-honoring expert should ask is, how can I be a good neighbor? Not what's the least I can do, which is really what he was asking, but what is the most I can do? It stops us in our tracks a little bit, doesn't it? Because that's us. Often in my life, my initial response to a crisis is to think, what's the, what's the least I can do here? What's the way that I can tick this box? That's what, the, that's what this Jewish expert is saying. Who's my neighbor? Show me what I've got to do, and I'll do that, and then I'll know that I'm keeping this commandment. And Jesus tells him this story, and he shows him through the life of this Samaritan that the question should be, what is the most that I can do? And when we think about our compassionate responses to people, let's think of it in that light. Let's let Jesus show us this story, turn us around to look at people with real compassion. I don't know if you followed or are following the refugee crisis that's gone on across the Mediterranean 
And uh, I guess it's not reported as often in the news now, is it? We, we, don't, we don't see as much of it, but it still, it still happens. And uh, with what's coming up on Thursday, I am, I'm not making any political statements. I'm not making any observations sufficient to say that we all look at this crisis in the Mediterranean Sea through a specific lens, don't we? We might not realize it, but that's actually what we do. It's influenced by our parents, colleagues at work, the newspaper paper we read, the country that we live in. We've got all these influences pointing at us that give us a perspective on this crisis in the Mediterranean Sea. We look at it through a very specific lens, everybody. We have prejudice in and out of the country. It's in any newspaper that you pick up. And it was all there to see until, and I'm trying to think when this was, until a picture came out in one of the papers. Do you remember this picture of a boy who, was, who had died and his father had pulled him out of the sea? Do you remember that picture? And all of a sudden, very quickly, all of Europe stopped. And almost in a moment, and not for very long, it didn't last, but the boundaries and the barriers all came down because suddenly this wasn't any more immigrants who had mobile phones sneaking into our country story. This was a story about human beings. We all have sons. We all have fathers. And all of us, all the boundaries came down. And for a second, me, we looked at people the way that God sees them. This tragedy smashed through all these boundaries that are there. All these different lenses that we're supposed to look at this story through, right or wrong. I'm making no political observations, but they were all gone in this moment because we saw the human being. That is how God wants us to see this world. That is what's happening with the story of the Good Samaritan. All of the boundaries are quashed. God gets us to see people exactly as he sees them, all equal, all human, all loved. This is the world as God sees it. Jesus says to the expert, so who was the neighbor? The expert says, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus says to him, right, go and do likewise. One of the big problems, I think, and I've had more and more sympathy with, with, with the Jewish nation as I've read through this story, was, was their efforts and their strivings to achieve purity. Their efforts and their strivings to, to, to get to this point of being set apart. They were God's set apart people. This is a tough message for them to hear. They've fought for this country. All their existence has been about being set apart for God. And now Jesus comes and says, now the message is to go out to break out into the world. I want you just to stall and think about this for a second. To be set apart for the nation of Israel was to be holy and to be pure. They'd set themselves apart in this way. What does it mean for us to be set apart now? Jesus is explaining in this story the very heartbeat of God's law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. What does it mean to be Set apart. Are we to be holy? Yes. Are we to strive for purity? Yes. These are things that should mark us out as Christians. These are the hallmarks of our God. Are we to be people who have love and compassion for others? Yes. This is something that should mark us out and distinguish us. 
people who can't walk past people worse off than themselves, people who are constantly thinking about the gospel, people who are looking out into the world saying, here's the lost people that God loves. And all of a sudden, I find myself in the audience listening to the parable thinking, really? I've got to love everybody? I'm, I'm looking at the parable through one perspective thinking, yeah, this is right. And then when I find myself in the position where I've got to love people who are unpalatable, who just aren't kind, who've got no sense of morality. Yeah, this is the message. This is what marks you out. This is how people can look at you and say, yeah, this is, this is one of God's people because he has compassion on the lost. Yes, he's holy and he's pure, but he's got a heart for the lost as well. One more story, take-home story, Mary and Martha. It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love these little, um, little stories that Luke puts together. Um, we've seen already, hopefully in the parable of the Samaritan, that Jesus and Luke, as, as he describes the story, has redrawn some of the boundaries that exist within the people who follow God. And Luke makes clear in this story, I think, that there are some things within Israel that are going to be shaken up as well. Just follow the text and see, see what stands out to you as being un- unordinary in this text. It's verse 38. If you could skip on. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. So this is... This is Jesus, I think, as I see this. Jesus, Jesus almost off his guard. He's in the home of Mary and Martha, and the other, the other sibling is, is Lazarus, and you'll know the story of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus is a welcome guest in this house. This is the time of, 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 of relaxation for Jesus. This is familiar territory. Martha is busy in the kitchen, and Mary is listening at the feet of Jesus. I don't know at what point... In the story, Jesus doesn't give, give us this detail, or Luke doesn't give us this detail rather, that Mary stops being busy in the kitchen. If she ever was busy in the kitchen, I don't know. This is the scene that plays out in many homes up and down the country, isn't it? Often the two people can be in the kitchen working together and then something comes on the TV. For me, it's football, and all of a sudden I'm gone. I'm not in the kitchen anymore. My work has ceased. And if Jude was to come through and I said, I'm doing something better then I'd get clouted or something like that because that would be out of order. But that's what Jesus says about what Mary's doing. She's chosen to do something better. First of all, let's deal with Martha's story. Because Jesus doesn't have a go at her for the work that she's doing. Jesus doesn't say, this is not worthwhile work that you're doing. Martha is doing a good thing. She's using her gifts, the work that she's doing in the kitchen is worthwhile, good work. That's not where Jesus picks her up. Look in the text, what is Jesus' problem with what Martha's doing? She's distracted by many things. It's not her activity that Jesus is annoyed about. It's her attitude. 
that he's got a problem with. How quickly does that happen in Christian life? Something good, a good work that we start off doing, it's a good thing to do. And down the line, still a good thing to do, but because of our attitude, it becomes a bad thing to do. Jesus says, that's what's happening here. It's a good thing that you're doing, but your attitude's bad. Jesus picks it up really simply and says, doing a good thing, but your attitude's bad. Doesn't happen so often in Christian circles. We start with good intentions. Even in, in, in any aspect of our life, we start off something with good intentions, doing a good thing, and then we just get sick of it. We keep doing it. Jesus would say to us, I think, in these moments, especially when we're doing work for church, come back to my feet. Stop what you're doing. Come and sit at my feet. Learn about me again. I wonder what Martha's problem with Mary was. I wonder what the real beef was. Was it that Martha had too much to do in the kitchen? Was it that her sister wasn't pulling her way? Or was it that she'd crossed a boundary? You see, in these times, there were very specific places for men and women to sit. There were places for men and places for women. And I guess in this instance, the women were in the kitchen or whatever, wherever, wherever you would call the room where they were preparing the food. And the men were sitting at the feet of Jesus. And not only had Mary gone into this room where Jesus was talking, but she had gone to his feet now, she's not just there as a lapdog. Lap dog. She's not just bringing him drinks. She's making a specific statement when she sits at the feet of a rabbi. Now, you can, if you read through some of, some, of, some of the things that Paul says about Gamaliel, Paul was a disciple of Gamaliel. He sat at his feet. When you read about that in the Bible, you're making a statement. You're saying, I'm, I am a disciple of you. And Mary comes out of the kitchen. She sees Jesus here. She knows he's on the way to the cross. She knows that it's important that the food's been cooked, but she sees something better. She crosses a boundary, and she says, I'm going to sit at your feet. I want people to know that I'm listening to this man. I am a disciple of this man. I want to listen to him so that I can tell others about him. Not that the work that Martha wasn't, was doing was not valuable, not a good thing, but what she was doing was better. I wonder, what's the biggest influence on your life today? What is the thing that, dis- that, that has the biggest influence on what you do every day? What is it? Have a, have a think for a second. Is it the prescribed morality of modern Britain? Is it the paper that you read? Is it your dad? Is it the social norms and moral expectations? Or is it, as was the case for Martha, the overwhelming, outpouring love of God that she just could not resist. This story of the Good Samaritan and this story of Mary at Jesus' feet should arrest us, should stop us in our tracks, should hurt us a little bit and call us back again to learn more about this wonderful man, Jesus, and what he's done for us.